One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Barbara Demick. I'm a reporter with the Los Angeles Times, formerly Beijing bureau chief, and I'm author of Nothing to Envy, Normal Lives in North Korea, and Besieged Life on a Sarajevo Street. Barbara Demick has had a long and distinguished career in journalism. She's worked as the LA Times' bureau chief in Seoul, South Korea, and wrote a series of award-winning articles about life under the North Korean regime. Then she moved to Beijing to continue reporting for the paper before returning to her native USA. Amongst all the stories she's worked on, there's one that stayed with her. And it starts on an innocuous reporting trip back in 2009. I'm Maeve McLennigan. This is The Tip-Off. When Barbara started a new role at the LA Times, there was one topic that immediately cried out to her. So I moved to Beijing in 2007 to run the Beijing Bureau for the Los Angeles Times. I'd always been interested in adopted girls. I had several friends who adopted from China. And, you know, I'd heard all these stories about how these baby girls had been abandoned and that's why we were adopting them, we Americans. There's something like 100,000 adopted Chinese girls in the U.S. So I was really curious about how, where these girls were coming from. You know, where were all these, you know, 100,000 abandoned baby girls coming from? Were they being trafficked, stolen, kidnapped? Full of questions, Barbara started to ask around. She knew that the country still had a strict one-child policy at the time. It was only dropped in 2015, and that many families favoured a male child over a female. In small villages, Chinese government officials will, you know, go around keeping track of women's periods, looking for diapers on clotheslines, listening for the cries of babies to make sure that people are not having out-of-plan or, you know, illegal babies. And amongst those strict policies, Barbara was starting to hear of something even more dramatic happening. They were also taking babies, taking these babies who were quote-unquote out of plan. And the reason was that the adoption market was booming. It was all organized by the Chinese government. They had to make a cash donation, you know, quote-unquote donation, supposedly voluntary, but it wasn't, of $3,000 usually paid with brand new $100 bills to 
the orphanage that raised the baby. So there was money to be made. And that's where the rumors centered. So what I had heard, and there were like just a very few reports that had come out about it, was that Chinese government officials were taking babies from poor families to bring them to the orphanage and then, you know, sort of splitting this $3,000 bounty. And it seemed to be happening all over China, but there were very few stories about it. And I saw one really, really short story, just a few paragraphs, saying that there were some officials in this part of Hunan province who had been disciplined for taking babies. And that's what I started to investigate. And that's what led me to this story. So Barbara's on to something. The hint that there might be a corrupt practice of forcibly taking female babies from poor families to make a profit out of their foreign adoption. Keen to hear more, Barbara set off travelling, trekking through rural countryside to find remote villages. Looking for the families whose babies might have been confiscated. And what was immediately obvious was that the people who lost babies or had babies taken were very poor. They lived in extremely remote areas. They were often illiterate. And, you know, they were vulnerable. They'd had too many kids. They couldn't pay the fines. Day after day, Barbara travelled from one village to the next, collecting stories. And the more Barbara asked around, the more places she travelled to, the more rumours and stories she heard. Even in China, with its heavy censorship policies and regulated press, some stories were already out there. People were putting stuff on Weibo, which was the Chinese equivalent of Twitter, so there were complaints, and we had interviewed several other people in this, this area. It's a town called Xiaoyang. Actually, it's a city with various villages that are part of it. And they kept on tipping us off to other people. So one family would lead to another. These people were not passive, and they were not stupid by any means. They were uneducated, and they were weak. You know, they felt weak. They felt very powerless next to the government, but they were smart. But it was in one certain village, in Hunan province, that Barbara met a family whose story would stick with her for years. By the time I met them, this was summer of 2009, I had interviewed quite a few families, but I decided to do one more. And so we, again, drove over these very... Um, bumpy roads. It was Everything was unpaved. There were several places where the roads were washed out, and we had to kind of pay a bribe to get some farmers to put logs in the road to get there. And we found this family, or at least some of the family, in the middle of a bamboo forest. They were living in sort of a log cabin. It was a mother. Her mother was there and a girl who was, um, at that time, nine years old. The story the woman told was shocking. Working with two translators, Barbara settled down and started to ask questions. They were sitting outside. There were chickens running around, a lot of animals. It was really in this grove of bamboo. It's a very beautiful part of China. There are terraced rice fields. It was very wet. 
damp, it was humid, and the mother and daughter, I, I remember them, they were sitting on little plastic stools, were quite articulate, and you know they explained the whole story. It was the same as some of the others. The baby had been cared for by a relative. The parents were away doing migrant work. But it was an important difference to the other story she'd heard. The nine-year-old girl here had been one of a pair of twins, and her sister had been forcibly wrenched from the family years ago. They'd had two girls. One had stayed with the parents, and one had been left behind in the village. I found this kind of strange initially. I could never really understand it. But I I subsequently found out when the twins were born, one was very healthy, and one was kind of weak. And the parents decided that the weaker twin needed to be breastfed longer and that their family couldn't care for her. So they took that girl with them and they left the firstborn, larger, healthier twin with their relatives. The twin who was taken away was already about a year and a half. She was a toddler. She was walking around, she was speaking, and she was staying with an aunt and uncle and the family planning officials had suspected that there was a, an illegal baby, a non-registered baby, and they were trying to confiscate the baby. And they kept on coming to the house, trying to surprise them. They came one day and nobody was there except for the aunt who was taking care of the baby. And she was, she was barefoot, she was at home, she was preparing a meal. And there's a large group of men who came in and they restrained the aunt by hold her, held her arms and legs. And another man just took this child. The child was um, clinging to her legs and pried her fingers loose and carried her away. And then they kept on contacting the family and saying, you know, you can get the baby back if you pay the fines. There were sums amounting to several thousand dollars. It was out of the question for the family. Barbara noted down everything the woman was telling her. Even after hearing so many stories of babies taken from their parents, this story still shocked her. The young girl was sat there next to her mother, listening intently, eyeing up this foreign journalist. There was something about this nine-year-old girl who said she couldn't remember her twin sister, but she missed her. She wanted her brought back. And she kept saying to her mother, you know, when are you going to bring back my sister? When are you going to bring back my sister? As Barbara started to wrap things up, the mother pulled her aside. The mother said to me as I was leaving, well, come back again and bring my daughter. And I was like, oh, okay. She would later tell me that I promised I would do so. I'm sure I didn't make that promise because I never would have imagined it. Barbara wrote up her story and filed it with the LA Times editors. It had taken about four or five months of research, but finally the story was out there. And immediately people took note. And I knew it was going to be quite shocking to adoptive parents who liked to believe this fiction that they had rescued their children from abandonment. And, you know, probably in most cases they did, but I I knew it was going to be harrowing for the adoptive parents in the U.S., and it was. Barbara moved on. There were other stories to cover, plenty of them. 
But in the back of her mind, she couldn't forget that nine-year-old girl, Swanjan, and their questions about whatever happened to her twin sister. You know, a reporter can never resist a challenge. I wondered if I might be able to find this twin. So Barbara set herself a challenge, to find the other twin girl. But where on earth to start? More after this. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Barbara Demick is on a mission, but it's not for a news assignment. She has set out on a personal quest to try and find a twin sister who's been adopted away from her family years earlier. She suspected that this girl might be somewhere in the United States, and she knew she'd been adopted when she was about two years old, so older than most of the babies at that time. But she didn't know any more than that. So where do you start? I knew where she had been taken because all the babies from this, these villages who were taken in this part of Hunan province were taken to a social welfare institute. That's what they call the orphanages, but um, a social welfare institute in Shaoyang. Uh, Xiaoyang's a, a, a city, and there they had been implicated in buying and selling babies and adopting out stolen babies. So I started looking around for babies who had been adopted around that time from Xiaoyang who were older. And there was one resource that was immediately helpful, a Yahoo chat group for adoptive parents. They were organized by orphanage because families often um, 
stayed involved with the orphanages. They would raise money. I joined the Friends of Xiaoyang Orphanage group on Yahoo and started looking at the information about people's daughters. You know, the parents like to boast about, you know, here is, you know, my my Chrissy, you know, she arrived, she was thin and sick and couldn't speak English. And, you know, here she is winning a debating contest, dancing in the nutcracker, doing her job. Scrolling through the many, many proud posts from adoptive parents, one story caught Barbara's eye. And there was one family who wrote in and they had adopted in December, just around Christmas of 2002. And I knew this girl had been taken in spring of 2002. And the girl was older, about two years old, and she was already walking. And they put posted pictures of her. I couldn't quite tell from the pictures because I had met the twin sister when she was nine. These were pictures. One was like a toddler picture and the other was like a four or five-year-old. But it, it seemed like she could be the right girl. So I took the photos. I just plucked them from the internet. Could this be her? Barbara was excited. But how could she possibly confirm if this was the right child? She knew she wanted to show the photos to the family back in Hunan province to see if they recognised their daughter. But she was concerned that they would be so desperate to see their child again that hope and longing might cloud their judgement. So she came up with a plan. I borrowed a technique from watching all these police procedurals. I made essentially mugshots of Chinese baby girls. I plucked some random photos and I made a sheet of photographs to show the family. I think there were about 10 photographs. And two photographs were this girl, who I suspected was the stolen twin, and the rest were just random age-appropriate girls. After preparing the sheet full of photographs, Barbara sat down to write a letter. I didn't really want to raise the family's hopes, so... I just sent a note with it saying, you know, I'm making an effort to find your daughter. Here's some girls who were adopted around the same period. Do any of them resemble your missing daughter? We sent that by mail to a teacher. This family had no computer, no smartphone. There wasn't even regular mail delivery there. But somebody gave it to them, and then they called pretty quickly and said yes. And they had identified correctly the two photos on my mugshot sheet as being their daughter. Barbara was in shock. It was a match. She'd found the girl. But what now? And again, I was sort of doing this in my spare time. I was really, I was really busy. I was working all the time on breaking news. What to do? Tentatively, Barbara tried contacting the adoptive family to see if they would talk to her. They were in Texas. They were evangelical Christians. I tried to contact them, and their phone number was unlisted. They immediately took those photos off the internet. A dead end. I contacted everybody who knew them, and finally somebody wrote back to me, actually the moderator from this chat group, and said, you know, this family really can't deal with it. It was an older couple who had adopted. They had just experienced a big loss. The adoptive father had died of cancer the year before. And they said, you know, the family just really can't have anything to do with it. I had done all this reporting. 
but I wasn't really sure what to do with it. And I really felt like it would be wrong to like out this girl as being a stolen twin. She was nine years old, you know, in the U S I guess in the UK too, there's, there's a lot of restrictions about reporting on my, on minors, but it wasn't even the legal thing. It just felt to me wrong to write about her. But then I thought like, well, there's the Chinese family. And okay, I'm American, but do I owe the American family more than I owe the Chinese family? I was really very conflicted about what to do. In the end, I decided that our priority was the girl herself. So I wrote to the Chinese family and said, you know, I'm pretty sure I've located your daughter in the U.S. She's young and the family is really freaked out about it. And we really can't do anything at this time, but I'm pretty sure she's, she's alive and well and just feel better about that. I took all the information I had gathered and I had some um, videos and photographs and other bits of documentation and I sent them to a relative of the adoptive family and I sent them a note saying, look, I know this is difficult. I'm not going to write anything about it, but you ought to know this is what I found out. And that kind of was that. I just felt like it would be that I had to protect this girl. So then, the story was over. Or so Barbara thought. By 2017, Barbara had left China and was now working as the New York correspondent for the LA Times. It was a busy beat, and she was in the midst of covering the Trump election and the Million Woman March when, on a cold afternoon in September, a message pinged on her Facebook page. Ms. Demick, the message read, you contacted me a long time ago. Are you still interested in talking with me? If so, my family and I are interested. Barbara was confused. She had no idea what the message was referring to. She contacted people all the time. Who was this guy? She replied curtly, saying as much. I said, who are you? I don't know who you are. The response came through quickly. My mum adopted a little Chinese girl years ago, and it appears she has a twin sister still in China. And I just, like, bolted upright. Barbara stared at her screen in awe. Of course she remembered. How could she forget? The man writing to her was the adoptive brother of this girl, who had been called Esther. Esther had turned 16 and was interested in hearing more about her birth family. And she was interested in meeting her twin sister. And the family remembered that I had kept their secret for all these years. And so they trusted me and they wanted my help. Intrigued, Barbara soon found out more about how Esther had come to be part of her new family. You know, they had no idea that she had been stolen from her family. They had been told that she was found abandoned in front of a bamboo craft factory. And they had been horrified when they found out that she'd been taken from her family. Now Esther wanted to reconnect with her birth family. And she was asking Barbara's help to do so. But Barbara knew it wouldn't be so easy. It took time. Esther had been really traumatized to find out how she'd come to be adopted away from her birth family. You know, her first reaction to finding out that she was a stolen baby was like, are they going to make me go back? The process of getting the girls together was very tentative. I suggested that Esther write a letter in English 
um, because she didn't remember any Chinese. We translated it into Chinese, I, with the help of a news assistant, and we sent it to Shuangjie. We sent it to her, and she wrote a response, and we translated it again. They would write the letters, upload them to the app, then I would translate and send them. And this was all through WeChat, which is this just ubiquitous Chinese messaging app. And so they became sort of like pen pals. Things moved along slowly. The girls messaged each other about everyday things, what colours they liked, what sports they enjoyed. Little by little, they got to know this far-off stranger who just happened to be their twin. Months passed, and soon Barbara was due to travel to China for a personal trip. I said, look, I'll swing by Hunan province and go see Shuangjie, the Chinese twin. Um, And maybe we'll do a video chat. You can do a lot with technology. This was kind of a lark because I really wasn't sure I would be able to get a story out of it because the American family was still very reluctant to go public. I'd say that my employer, the LA Times, is also reluctant to pay for it because They didn't know if it was going to end up being a story. So I did this kind of on my own dime. So Barbara hopped on a plane back to China. And while there, she made her way to Henan province. I went to Changsha, where Shuangjie was working. And I met this girl who was no longer a little girl. I had met her before when she was nine in the bamboo grove. But she was now 16, about to turn 17. She didn't remember me at all. I remembered her very clearly. She came with a friend to my hotel room, and she was so nervous. I had also a news assistant from the Beijing Bureau. Um, So we we dialed up on WeChat, this app where you can do, you know, video conferencing. It's a little like FaceTime, although, you know, Facebook is blocked in China. And the girls, you know, saw each other for the first time on the screen, just on this little, little square of the telephone. Shuangjie in China, in a hotel room, it was about... 8 p.m. It was 7 a.m. in Texas, and they really um, just stared at each other for a long time because they look alike. They both have very um, round cheeks and kind of twinkly eyes and, you know, really big, very charismatic smiles, both of them. They really have great smiles. And they looked at each other and didn't say much for a while. Uh, Esther kind of cracked a joke and said, well, I was going to put on makeup, but I figure you know what I look like. They talked for a few hours. It was very, it was very slow. There were a lot of disconnects between them. And I, I could just see that they didn't understand each other's culture. So it wasn't altogether successful, but it, it broke the ice. But before she left Swanjan in the hotel room, Barbara had one last idea. I took a DNA sample with a little um, cheek swab. You take something that's like a Q-tip and you scrape your cheek. And Esther had also taken the same kind of DNA test and we sent it to a lab. And they were turned out to be identical twins. Every genetic marker was identical. So there it was. They were identical twins. Sisters who hadn't seen each other for more than 16 years. I was really fascinated by... Esther and Shuangjie, because I've always been interested in sort of national identity and immigration. 
I was looking at these two genetically identical people, like every DNA marker was the same, same person in some ways, but one, one was Chinese, one is American. And, you know, what does that mean? You know, what makes an American? And there were some things about them that were sort of stereotypically, you know, reflective of their nationalities. For example, Esther, the American, has this like can-do American confidence. was really something very American, very Texan about her. Shuangzhi was much more tentative and apologetic. The cultural differences were intriguing. But when Barbara stopped to think about it, she realised with amusement that though she'd now met Swanji twice, she hadn't yet met Esther. So back in New York, she contacted the family and set up a time to travel to Texas to meet them at last. It was interesting to go see them. I'm from New York. I grew up on the East Coast. And this is, you know, a very evangelical family in Western Texas. This will sound strange, but it was for me, it was like actually more exotic going to visit them than traveling around China. I wasn't really sure how I would get along with the family because I'm secular and our politics are not really the same. And, you know, as you know, America is very polarized. But it turned out we got along like a house on fire. So now Barbara knew both families, had met both girls, and yet they still hadn't met each other. So sitting there with Esther and her adopted mother, Marsha, the solution seemed obvious. I said kind of spontaneously, well, let's go to China together and meet them. They're really nice people. And, you know, we just decided we would all go. Barbara had a difficult decision to make. The family had agreed she could write about their story, but they couldn't afford to get out to China themselves. While journalists in the US would not typically pay a source for their story, Barbara reasoned this was different and decided she was going to help fund the cost of getting Esther back with her sister. And the the whole thing ballooned. The entire family wanted to go. You know, they were not really world travelers, although they had, you know, adopted abroad. Um, everybody needed passports, visas. Soon Esther and her adopted family were piling onto a plane alongside Barbara, ready for an adventure. We got to Changsha capital of Hunan province, which is a very modern city. And they were like, wow, China, you know, so modern. But then as we started um, driving towards the village, which was about four or five hours from Changsha, it was just like modernity was receding in the rearview mirror. And we, you know, got onto smaller and smaller roads. And it was... Um, really awful weather. That, that part of China doesn't usually have heat in the winter, no central heating. And it was, you know, just above freezing every day and raining every day. It was really cold and gloomy. And when we talked about it later, I think the adopted girls were sort of veering between like, wow, this is my homeland. This is where I'm from. And thank God I was adopted. But no, this is my home. I mean, I think it's very weird for an adoptee going back. And we had a van and we drove on this little windy, muddy road up to the village. And I wasn't really sure if I could recognize the house because there's no addresses. You're just, you know, in the, the mountains there. And it was so rainy and foggy. And, you know, as we approached the house, we saw Shuangjie 
standing in the middle of the road. She was wearing these like pink fake suede boots waiting for our car. And she, you know, gestured for the car to pull over and park. And, you know, we opened the door and Esther got out. And, you know, Shuangjie just, you know, took her arm. And she said just one thing. She said, Esther, Esther, because she couldn't say Esther. Didn't, you know, didn't hug her, didn't embrace her, didn't even really stare at her. Everybody else piled out of the car. And Esther and Shuangjie just stood there side by side kind of like blinking and looking like, you know, very startled. I thought they were like, you know, a bride and a bridegroom in an arranged marriage. They were so anxious and frozen. And the whole first day of the visit, they didn't look directly at each other. It was just like they were too frightened to stare. It was not what I expected. I had covered one other reunion of an adoptee in a birth family where people were like falling on the ground and fainting and wailing and weeping. And this was just amazingly restrained. The American family were ushered into the house and slowly the two families got to know each other. Over the coming days, Esther and co would travel from the nearby hotel to spend time with Xuanzhan and her family. And each day it got better and better. People hugged and Marsha the adoptive mother, had really wanted to say for years and years how sorry she was that Esther had been taken from her birth family. And she had been like saving up the speech really since 2009. And, you know, she told them that she was sorry she had in some way contributed to Esther being taken from her birth family. Shuang Jie's parents, the birth parents, said, I think what they were saying, wanted to say for years was, you know, thank you for bringing up our daughter. Thank you for taking such good care of her. Thank you for raising her so nicely because she is lovely. She's, you know, very polite and immaculate and just has really lovely social graces. I could see how aware she was about making everybody comfortable and they said, you know, we're grateful that you brought her up to be such a lovely young woman. And, you know, we understand that she's American now. She will not come back to live in China. But, you know, we, we hope we can see her occasionally. Yet Barbara could see that Esther was still struggling. Her birth mother took her to the secluded spot where she'd given birth in secret. And Esther seemed to take solace in the fact that the family had desperately wanted to keep both daughters, but that she had been forcibly taken from them. Despite this... She was still showing a shyness, a reluctance around her twin sister. The whole time we were in the village, Esther and Shuangjie really didn't have much time to spend together. Um, they were very reticent to speak. You know, there was just, there were always a lot of people around. There's like, everybody was home for Chinese New Year. It was a big extended family. But it was towards the end of the holiday and Shuangjie needed to go back to work in the city. So she drove back with us to Changsha, where she's actually living and working. And the minute the girls were, you know, more or less alone together, they just, you know, were completely bonding in the way that twin sisters should. I remember we like got to the van and remember which one it was said to the other so do you have a boyfriend this was all going through a translator but you know just question after question and when we got back to the city 
Shuangjie came to visit every day. And the girls had like a little bit of the childhood that they never had together. They played kind of kids games like patty cake, clapping hands. They braided each other's hair. They did makeup together. They played card games. They did very well with, um, you know, sort of nonverbal communications, you know, really almost like children who can't really communicate yet properly. They just, you know, using their hands and eyes and they became much more physically affectionate. They held hands, they hugged, and I could see how bonded they were with each other. When it came time to say goodbye, things turned emotional. The parting was actually quite tearful and sad. But the girls have stayed in close contact, messaging each other regularly. They've been talking about raising money to bring Shuangjie to the U.S., I went back to Texas to see the family after the trip, just to sort of rehash things. And Esther was practicing her Chinese cooking. They both like to cook. Esther made dumplings and some Chinese stir fry. And she was really planning for Shuangjie's visit. And you know, I think it will happen. I think they'll stay in touch for life. It was an incredible story to be part of. And Barbara had played a crucial role in getting these two sisters together again. In August 2019, the LA Times published the story of how the reunion had come about. I put a link to that article in the show notes. I had a huge reaction to the piece. I don't think I've ever gotten so many messages and emails on a story. I think in part because there's not that much good news in the media these days. And so I think People just took some heart from it. I mean, it's a happy story all around. Now Barbara is writing the story into a book called Double Purity. So do watch out for that. That's all from this episode of The Tip-Off. Thanks so much to Barbara for talking with us. We have another episode for you soon. And this episode was made possible thanks to support from Charities Aid Foundation and the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. As always, we are so grateful to our Patreon supporters who keep helping us make more episodes of the show. And if you want to join them, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash the tip off. This episode was edited by Alice Milliken and our theme music is by Dice Muse. Stay tuned for more stories behind the headlines. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.